So you can imagine the experience of going to the doctor and you go in and the doctor examines you and he says, there's bad news, you are horribly sick and we need to rush you into emergency surgery right now or you're gonna die. And you say, okay, I'm, well, if, it, if it's an emergency, I trust your authority, you know what you're talking about, I don't know that much about medicine. But then another doctor comes in and looks at you and says, no, you're fine. If you go into that surgery, you're going to die on the table. So don't, don't listen to the other doctor. And so what do you do then in that moment? Because you have two authorities. You have two people who know more about medicine than you do. And they're arguing, they're disagreeing, but your life is on the line. And, and so who do you trust? Who do you choose as the ultimate authority in that moment, because to do nothing is to choose one of them, to do something is to choose one of them, so what do you do? And I think that that illustrates the, the problem of authority that we face in our world, where we see so many competing authorities saying, do this, don't do this, listen to me, I know what I'm talking about, and then others say, no, they don't know what they're talking about, don't listen to them, we are the true authorities, listen to us. And so who do we trust? Who do we believe? What authority is actually reliable? Uh, even if we say, well, we're the ultimate authority, are we reliable? Who do we look to? Who do we trust? And that's the question that we see here from this text. We see that the question of ultimate authority. Who has the authority? What will we do with the authority of God? And if you're following along, uh, we're going to walk through this passage just section by section. So I would encourage you to keep your bulletin open or keep your Bible open so you can follow along as we walk through this passage. And as we talk about authority, I already mentioned that th this has been the theme, really, of the last few weeks. Because Jesus, when he entered the, the uh, city of Jerusalem, there was this display of authority coming in as the, the royal king. And then he displayed his authority as he wept over the city, as he drove out the money changers. And we see here in the beginning of our text the authority of Jesus teaching in the temple, that the, the temple is the very nerve center of worship in ancient Israel, established by God in the Old Testament. And by kicking out money changers, teaching Jesus is asserting really authority in the temple. And of course, Jesus asserts his authority today as well. And it's different than they saw in Jerusalem at that time, because we don't see Jesus driving money changers out of the church. We don't see Jesus physically teaching in Jerusalem anymore. But yet we see the authority of God, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, expressed through the word of God, that, that we have a conviction that the Bible is the truthful, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And if you think about it, in one sense, you could have a Bible that has red letters that's saying that's the, the, the words of Jesus in the text. But in a way, you could make the entire Bible red letter because Jesus himself is God incarnate. Uh, and so since the whole Bible is the word of God, that in a real sense, we could say that the whole Bible is the authoritative word of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the lordship of Jesus expresses itself today through the written 
word of God. And that is the written word of God, Jesus speaking to us, that makes this incredible, audacious claim of authority, that it claims authority over our lives, over our understanding of God, who he is, over nature, over humanity, over our understanding of right and wrong, salvation, the church, worship, everything, that there's this universal claim of authority from God in Scripture. But even as we see that claim of authority, I think that we often question the authority of Jesus speaking in his word. And it's that questioning of the authority and the right of Jesus that we see from the religious leaders here in our text. Look again at at verse 1 in your Bible. Jesus is teaching. It says that as he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Who is it who gave you this authority? And so again, this is the the question of authority from the religious leaders. And I can actually understand their question in a sense, because if somebody comes into a space where they don't have authority and they start exerting authority that they don't have, it causes you to to raise an eyebrow, to, to question. I mean, if I came into your home and told your children they can eat the candy or they shouldn't eat the candy, or they should watch this TV show, or they shouldn't watch this TV show. If I tried to exert authority in your household, you would say, who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right? Or if I came into your workplace and started bossing your employees around and delegating work to them, you would say, who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority? You don't have authorization to do that. And I think that's also how we think about Jesus as he speaks through the scriptures to us, that we see his universal claim of authority over our lives, and we say, who gives you the right to tell me what to do? Who gives you the right to define the fundamental problem of the human condition, or to define the the proper role of sex, or to tell me how to use my money, or to tell me how to use my time, or to tell me how to, to worship? or to define the way of salvation, who gives you that right, that we question the authority? And I think that we partially question the authority of Jesus and his word because there are so many competing authorities. And it's really what I was talking about with the doctors, where you might have two doctors telling you conflicting information. They're both authorities on the surface. You don't know who to trust, who to believe. And that's the way it is in the world as well, where we see many different authorities. And you could say that there are internal authorities coming from within us. It could be rational thought. We say, I think, therefore, I am, that that my mind is the authority. Or we talk about moral intuition. It just feels right, or it just feels wrong, where my emotions, my feelings are the authority. Or it could be subjective experience. No one can question my truth. And we talk about my truth because it's my personal experience of the world, my subjective experience, that is the authority that trumps all other authorities. So again, those are these internal authorities. 
But then we could also think about external authorities. Uh, for instance, scientific authority. You may hear somebody say, I just follow the evidence. I follow the science. Or traditional authority, where, where somebody says, hey, we've been doing this for thousands of years. How could it be wrong? Or we have institutional authority, where people will say, well, you know, he went to Harvard. You really should listen to him. Or you know where he got his degree. You know where he studied. And so we, we put so much clout into the institutions that the institution itself is what gives the authority. Now, talking about all of these authorities, I think it is important to say that, that Christians value many different authorities outside of the Bible, that we value rational thought. We value moral intuition. We value experience, that our experience matters. We value scientific methodologies. We value the wisdom of tradition. We value solid institutions that, that our goal is not just to overthrow every claim to authority in the world. That, that these authorities, in a limited sense, can be actually really, really good. And where would we be without some trust? But of course, the problem comes when these authorities collide, when they don't agree when we're hearing conflicting information, because then we have to decide who are we going to trust. Again, it's the person who hears conflicting information from the doctors, that one of them has to become the ultimate authority. And that's the way it is for us as well, that when authorities conflict, one way or the other, one of the authorities is going to become the ultimate authority, where we'll choose our subjective experience over science, or we'll choose our intuition about morality over rational thought, or we'll choose our moral intuition over tradition. And you could just match different authorities and, and think about how we might choose one of them over another. But as we look at our text today, it's, it's interesting to ask what the authority of the religious leaders is what authority do they claim when they come to Jesus about authority? And I'm pretty sure that if you were to go up to these religious leaders and you said, what's your authority? They would say, our authority is from God, that we're going to claim a theocratic authority, um, that we're, we have authority because God gave it to us. But I think that really, if you probed beneath the surface, they didn't have a theocratic belief in the authority of God, but they actually had institutional authority. That in Israel, they were the ones who held the keys of institutional power. They were the ones who could tell people how to worship and what was to go on at the temple. And then here, Jesus comes in without the credentials, without the institutional authority, and he exerts his authority by driving out the money changers, by teaching. And so they say, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Because it wasn't us, and we are the ones who hold authority here. We are the true authorities. But of course, as we see them questioning the authority of Jesus, as we reflect on our own questioning of authority, 
it can actually be a good thing to question authority sometimes. It's not always wrong. Um, I mean, if you think about it, we are, as a Presbyterian church, we stand in the Protestant tradition. And if you break apart the word Protestant, it means protestant, that it was a protest against the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And the saying that when, when there's a conflict, when the authority of the church comes into contact with the, or conflict with the authority of the Bible, that the ultimate authority in our lives is the written word of God, not human tradition, not the human institution of the church. And so it was, it was rooted in a right questioning of authority. And as you wrestle with your faith, it's good to question authority. Don't just assume something is true because a pastor said it or because you read it in a book, that we shouldn't just accept things blindly, but we, we seek to understand, we seek to, to arrive at a deeper understanding of truth, and that can be a really good thing. And the nice thing is that if the Bible is true, which it is, it actually stands up to scrutiny. Now, we don't have to be afraid that if we ask questions or if we question authority that somehow it's going to crumble because it is truth. But then we also have to be careful as we are questioning authority. Because though it's right to question authority in one sense, sometimes we question authority from insincere motives. And it's these insincere motives that we see here in our text. Because as, the, the, as they ask the question, as they question the authority of Jesus, he doesn't give them a direct answer. Because he could have said, you, you, want, you want to know my authority? Well, I am the eternal son of God. I am God and man in one person. I created the world. I sustain everything. According to my human nature, I'm descended from King David. I'm the Messiah. I am the only sinless human being who ever lived. If anyone has authority here, it's me. That he could have given this kind of direct answer to their question of authority. But instead, Jesus gives an indirect answer, and he throws the question back on them in verse 3. He says, I also will ask you a question. Now, now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, just as a, as a side note, this is a, a lesson that I've been learning as a pastor over the last few years, where sometimes I'll, I'll meet someone and they'll say, oh, you're a pastor. That's really interesting. What do you think about, and then you can just fill in whatever emotionally charged, politically uh, charged issue you want to put into the, to the blank. What does your church believe about, and then you fill it in. And, and I used to feel the pressure in those moments to answer, to give you know, a quick kind of Twitter answer that captures what I believe and what the church believes. But then I started to realize that often when people ask those questions, it's not this sincere searching after truth, but that it actually comes from insincere motives quite often where people will, will know what they think on those issues. And they're trying to essentially see, okay, do I agree with you or do I disagree with you? Am I going to listen to what you're going to say, or am, am I going to put you in a predetermined category to then dismiss everything that you say after this? And so I found that sometimes it is helpful to actually do what Jesus does here, where he, 
he takes the question and then instead of giving a direct answer, he actually puts a question back on the person who answered to say, and, I, and sometimes I think that can be helpful for us as well, not to be evasive to questions of truth, but to say, well, tell me, why, why do you ask that question? Or what's your experience with that topic? And that sometimes I find by giving a question back to the question that you can actually get to the, the root of, is this coming from a sincere desire to, to seek after truth, where then you can have a real conversation about the topic? Or are they just trying to put you in a box? In which case, maybe the direct answer isn't the, the wise answer. And that's, again, what we see from, from Jesus. So again, end of side note. But going into the, the passage again here, we see Jesus throwing the question back on the religious leaders. And then we realize how brilliant this question is. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe in him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so Jesus then gets underneath the surface it shows what they're, what's really going on deeper in their motivations. Where they're not interested in holding on to truth, they're actually interested in holding on to power. Where they, they, they realize, hey, if we say that the authority of John the Baptist is from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you accept his authority? Why didn't you believe in him? It'll make us look bad because clearly we don't think that John was teaching from the authority of God because he made us look bad. But then they also say, well, we can't say that John, John was just had authority from human beings because the people respect him. And if we do that, we'll lose our respect from others. And then we'll be moved out of the position of authority and power. Uh, our, our institutional authority will lose its clout with the people. And so they say, we don't know. And it's, and it's almost humorous, because if they can't judge the authority of John the Baptist's ministry, the greatest prophet of their time, how can they even claim any kind of divine authority for themselves? Or how can they claim any right to be able to judge the divine authority of Jesus? And so you can see what Jesus says in verse 7. They, they said, we don't know. Verse 8, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That Jesus sees their insincere motives, he calls it out that they only cared about their own authority. But of course, we can also be a lot like the religious leaders when we question the authority of Jesus. And we don't like to admit that, but when we question the authority of Christ, we try to pretend a lot of times that we are these objective people, that we are just using the scientific method, we have nothing invested in the conversation, that, that we're just seeking after truth. But in reality, our questioning of the, the authority of Jesus is actually arising from the rejection of Jesus that preceded the question, that we're actually putting up these bulwark against the authority of Jesus in our lives, that we're trying to defend our own authority, our own lusts, our own sin patterns, our own way of doing things, our own desires, our own nation, our own institutions, that, that we're trying to protect the things that we hold dear. And we, and we know that 
if we really put our life before the standard of Christ, that, that his authority will challenge our lives, and we can't handle that. So we reject his authority. And tragically, it's this rejection of the authority of Christ that has been the pattern throughout human history. And that's what Jesus points out in verse 9 of our text. That he, he tells this parable, and the parable is also, it's in the same theme. It's about the rejection of divine authority. And as you look at the parable, this, this man plants a vineyard, and he then has authority over it because it's his vineyard. And then he gives it and, and actually leases it to tenants. And the tenants are to steward his authority over the vineyard. And he goes away on a, to, on a trip to a foreign land. But then it says that he sends a servant to collect. And the tenants act like they have authority over the vineyard. It's their vineyard. And so they, they reject the servant, send him away. He sends another servant, they reject him. They send another servant, he, they beat him, they abuse him. And so finally, the owner of the vineyard says, you know what? I'm going to send my own son, and surely they will listen to my son. But when the son arrives, they say, hey, this is the heir. This is the person who will one day own this vineyard. And so if we kill the son, then who will, who will be the heir? Who will own this vineyard? We will own the vineyard. We will have authority someday. And so they, they kill him. They throw him out of the vineyard, this, this ultimate assertion of their authority over the vineyard. And of course, the, it's not that the owner was powerless in the situation, that he sent his own son out of mercy and, and grace, giving them the opportunity to change and repent and return. But then it says in the parable that eventually he would send his forces and would destroy the wicked tenants. He would reclaim the vineyard and he would give it to others. Now, as you think about the, the meaning of this parable, that, that obviously what, what Jesus is, is talking about is the relationship of God to his covenant people, Israel. That God established Israel he was the one who planted them in the world, and, and to Israel's leaders, he gave authority, but it was delegated authority of tenets. But they rejected his authority over and over again, turning to idolatry. And so he sent prophets, and they rejected his prophets. He sent more prophets, many of whom they beat, many of whom they killed. They would not accept the authority of God. And that's actually what Isaiah 5 says. It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so, of course, then in the fullness of time, God sent his beloved son, and they rejected his authority as well. We've already seen it in the temple, but ultimately they, they reject his authority. They kill the son of God the ultimate rejection of the authority of God over their lives, thinking now we will be the true authorities over Israel, over God's covenant people. But then tragically, this rejection of God's authority has repeated itself over and over again in even the history of the church. Where in the Middle Ages, many in the church rejected the authority of Christ for the authority of the, of the church, of tradition, as we talked about. And the Enlightenment, many in the church said, hey, we're going to reject the authority of Christ for 
human reason that we're going to pick and choose what's true in the Bible. And even in modern times, many in the church are saying we're going to choose what you could call postmodernism, that there is no truth, that it's up to us to define our own truth. And, and what we're seeing here in this text is that, that we shouldn't take lightly the rejection of the authority of Christ over our lives. Because listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 11. This is the Apostle Paul when he's been talking about the rejection of the gospel by ethnic Israel. And he says that if some of the branches were broken off, talking about the judgment on Israel, he says, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. That is true. Why? Were, they were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And so you, you see what, what Paul is saying. He's saying to the, to the church, he said, remember the rejection of the Messiah by the people of Israel. That if you also reject the Messiah, if you reject the authority of Christ, if they face judgment, you will face judgment as well. And so we say then, as the church, as we think about the authority of Christ coming to us in his word, how is it that we escape the judgment for rejecting the authority of Christ. And of course, it always comes back to Jesus. It comes back to what do we do with the person and the work of Jesus. And as we wrap up, that's where Jesus leaves us at the very end of our passage. Verse 17, he says, that it says that he looked directly at them. And I love that, that visual note of Jesus looking them intently, showing the importance of what he's saying. He says, what, what then is that that is written? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so this is saying that if we repent of our sins and, and trust in Christ, that, that he becomes then the cornerstone of our lives. That, that he becomes the cornerstone where we build everything on his authority in our lives. That where we can be firm through every storm. But if Jesus isn't the cornerstone of our lives, if we're not building our lives on his authority, then it's not that we can just live our lives however we want. That if he's not the cornerstone, then he becomes a stumbling stone. And we stumble over Christ's authority, we fall. And as Jesus says, it's even this, this stone falling from heaven. And that's Jesus drawing on this image from the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue in a vision representing all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the nations, all the authority of human beings and human institutions, human political power, human intellectual power. And we say that's where authority is. That's where we look. That's what we should trust. 
And in the vision, the king Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone fall from heaven, hits the feet of the statue, shatters it. The whole thing falls to the ground. And that's what Jesus did in his first and his second coming, that, that he came into the world and he shattered human expectations about authority and power. And when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, that is what he will do as well, that he's going to shatter all of, of the authority of the world, all that we think is, is powerful. And so then how will we stand in that day when the, the stone of Christ's judgment falls from heaven, that if he is our cornerstone, then we'll be secure if we've repented of our sins, if we've trusted in him. But if we're trying to rely on ourselves, then we're not going to be able to stand on that day. And so we say, what's our authority? And, and that may our authority be ultimately Jesus. Every day that we live, as we look to him, his righteousness, his salvation, his authority. Let's pray.